This is episode 58 of Cinescope. And this is the best bad idea we have, sir. By far. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Dan Lefebvre to talk about one of our favorite films, Argo. Dan, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I am doing well. I'm excited to have you on the show. You're one of those people who reached out and said, hey, I like your show and I'd like to be on it. And so I said, hey, yeah, that'd be great. (laughs) I appreciate you having me on. I'm a big fan of your show. Well, thank you very much, Dan. I appreciate it. And I have checked out your show as well. How about you tell us a little bit about it and about yourself? Yeah, sure. So my show is called Based on a True Story. And it's what the name implies. It's basically movies that claim to be based on a true story or inspired by true events like like Argo. And I compare what actually happened with what happened in the movie because there's always little changes that they make here and there. Some bigger changes, some not so big changes, kind of depends on the movie, but kind of comparing history with Hollywood is kind of slogan that I've got there. So uh, you can find the show at based on a true story podcast.com and check it out. Awesome. Now, what about yourself? What do you do? Uh, So my full-time job is actually working in the uh, corporate office for a winery. And so that's what I do during the day. And then uh, evenings I do the podcast and yeah. Cool. And I've seen on Facebook that you do a lot of photography kind of stuff too, right? Oh <laughs> yeah. That's more of a, more of a hobby. Just, I mean, that's always been something that I love, love to do. Uh, my background is actually in CG. So in 3d graphics and such. So always kind of been on the artistic side, kind of doing that. And um, photography's kind of always been there. Well, that's awesome. I, I really like the shots I've seen on Facebook so far. So I'll be, be sure to keep an eye out to see more of those. <laughs> Thanks. Well, cool. Um, if that's all that we've got for now, let's just go ahead and jump into our movie discussion. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. So we're talking about Argo, which was released on October 12th of 2012 and was directed by Ben Affleck, who also directed Gone Baby Gone, The Town, and Live by Night. The script was written by Chris Terrio and was based on the books The Master of Disguise by Antonio J. Mendez and The Great Escape by Joshua Behrman. The music here was composed by Alexander Desplat, who I don't think I've ever talked about on the show before. So here we've got quite an extensive uh, filmography to, uh, to go through right now. So we've got The Queen, The Golden Compass, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Fantastic Mr. Fox, The Twilight Saga, New Moon, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Parts 1 and 2, The King's Speech, Moonrise Kingdom, Zero Dark Thirty, The Grand Budapest Hotel, Godzilla, The Imitation Game, and The Secret Life of Pets. And even though that's a pretty lengthy list, that's a pretty small selection of everything (laughs) he's done so far. He's one of my favorites. Uh, The movie stars Ben Affleck, Brian Cranston, Alan Arkin, John Goodman, Tate Donovan, Clea Duvall, Christopher Denham, Scoot McNary, Carrie Bechet, Rory Cochran, Victor Garber, and Kyle Chandler. So as we always start off, Dan, what was your first experience with this movie? So it it was, this is one of those movies that I watched right after it came out. And honestly, I didn't really think much of it. It was just, you know, I, I watched, I was like, okay, but then um, when I, I did actually did an episode on this for, for my podcast and that kind of forced me to go back and watch it again. And it's one of those that every time I've gone back and watched it, I've just liked it even more, even more because it's, it's got so much that you can, I, I just love the character development in it. and I know we'll kind of get into that, but it's just one of those that initially, eh, oh, okay. And then the more I've watched it, I don't know how many times I've watched it by now, but, um, it's just one of those that just keeps getting better and better every time I watch it. This was sort of a weird kind of sleeper hit from what I remember. It it came out and I didn't hear a whole lot of buzz on it. And all of a sudden it was getting great critical reviews, but you just didn't hear a whole lot of people really talking about it. At least not that I remember. Um, I, in fact, didn't check it out, I don't think, until probably January after it came out. Uh, it was just still playing in one of my local theaters that happens to have a whole bunch of screens. So it held on to it for a little while. And so I, I think I caught like a Saturday morning matinee kind of showing <laughs> uh, with a whole bunch of older people in the theater. So it, it wasn't something that 
I initially was very interested in, but as it it was in theaters and it started getting great buzz, I decided, okay, let's go check this out. So I did, and I've always really liked it. I, I liked it from the get-go. You know, Ben Affleck has sort of been one of those divisive actors out there, especially after Daredevil, which, to be honest, was the only film I had seen him in or seen him attached to at all before I saw Argo. Um, I hadn't even, well, still, honestly, I haven't seen Pearl Harbor. Uh, I don't wow. think that's much of a strike against me, to be honest, <laughs> but uh, but I, I, just, I just haven't seen it. And so this was really my first true experience with Ben Affleck and certainly with Ben Affleck's filmmaking. And again, like I said, it's great. I've, I've enjoyed it since I first saw it, and I picked it up on Blu-ray pretty much as soon as I could. And despite that, this was my first time seeing it probably since 2013 or 2014. I know I showed it to family at some point, uh, but that would have been the last time I saw it. And so I was really happy for a revisit because it, it's just a great film. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I think it's something that, like I said, it, it kind of grows on you. The more you watch it, the more you can dive into the, the, the political aspect of it and all of the, all of that as well. It kind of just, it kind of sucks you in. Yeah. Let's talk about the story of it. So we can talk about some of the, the comparisons between real life and the, the film as well. What, what is it about this movie that sort of draws you in story-wise? So for me, I, I grew up in the eighties and I remember as a child hearing on the news or reading in newspapers, a lot of stuff about Iran and, Ayatollah Khomeini and, you know, the he, he just kind of hearing bits and pieces of it. But as a kid, I never really understood more than just surface level stuff. You know, I would kind of see it and, you know, see some anti-American images and various things like that. And just all of that kind of stuff. I'm sure it was kind of blown out of proportion. I don't remember specifics. I just remember kind of having that initial kind of mentality. And so right away when I saw this, it almost struck a, a wave of nostalgia, just kind of a lot of those images coming back. And, even you know, just right off from the get go, you kind of get a lot of those, you know, storming against the the embassy there in Tehran. And it was really interesting to me to, as I was, you know, kind of diving into the the real story behind it, to get to piece together what actually happened. And for me, it was, like I just said, you know, a lot of nostalgia kind of bringing back a lot of those memories that I had didn't really match up with what actually happened. Or, you know, in some cases, maybe they did, some cases they didn't. But it was really interesting to me to to, to piece those together. I think that was kind of something that stood out to me. And even though it was a completely new experience watching the movie, I'd never seen it before, but it was still had this kind of odd sense of nostalgia because of kind of the way, when I grew up and hearing all of that in my childhood. As I mentioned, I, I when I saw this movie, it was with more of an older crowd. And I distinctly remember in the end credits of the movie, there's this voiceover from Jimmy Carter who's talking about the whole situation. And there was one of the people in the audience that yelled at Jimmy Carter because I guess she wasn't all that fond of him as a president. No. <laughs> but it, it's just funny that people really uh, took this film and thought back to that time in their lives and we're able to to really draw from that experience in watching the movie and even watching the movie as somebody who wasn't around then it really firmly places you in that context i mean from the get go it shows the 1970s warner brothers logo and there there's like there, there might as well be a haze of smoke over the entire movie because every single person smokes a cigarette or a cigar or something like that at some point in the film it's just permanently hazy uh, it, it just does such a great job of drawing you into that time period, um, both in the the style and in the culture of everything, but also in just the events themselves. And Ben Affleck's hair. I mean, right. <laughs> ben Affleck's hair, yes. <laughs> oh, a lot of people's hair, a lot of people, people's mustaches for sure. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I also love that the, the start of the film has this sort of comic. It's like a comic book or graphic novel panel style prelude which is definitely a callback to Jack Kirby from Marvel Comics, created a whole lot of classic characters alongside Stan Lee, and he's actually the guy who drew up the storyboards for the fake movie. They don't call him by his name in the movie, but he does make an appearance, um, or an actor playing Jack Kirby, of course, uh, makes an appearance when Ben Affleck is asking him to to touch up and make something look more more like Iran, right? Uh, so it, it's cool that even from the start of the film, we get that that comic style Jack Kirby-esque uh, prelude. 
Yeah, for sure. That was something that I didn't notice the first time watching it through. I think that's that's kind of one of those things that it takes a couple different watch throughs to kind of to kind of get those little types of details. You, I mean, obviously you see it in the beginning, but you don't really make that connection. At least I didn't until watching it through a few different times. And I think that's something to be said for this kind of film because it isn't 100% technically accurate to true events, but it's a kind of movie that you want to learn more about, or at least I wanted to learn more about it. And you wouldn't know that that was Jack Kirby in the film if you didn't read up on it ahead of time or look through the cast list in more depth or something like that. It invites you to go out and to to research and to maybe check out the original source material written by Tony Mendez himself. Uh, to really get the knowledge from more accurate sources, but that doesn't detract from the the film experience, in my opinion. We we talked about this when we talked about the social network as well. Yes, it's probably fake or inaccurate in a lot of ways, but it invites you to to learn more on your own and it also is just a better way to to tell a more human story there there has to be drama added there has to be tension added or it's not going to to stand up as a successful film just because it's based on a true story you have to take some liberties here and there the movie does a great job um in, in the very beginning like that opening sequence where they're it does a great uh, you have that tension going on right so you have the 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 chaos outside of the gates and then you have inside i think that one of the embassy workers was talking to you know one of the um iranians trying to get a a visa or and they're just oh you forgot to fill out this extra little form right just you almost have no idea of what's to come and it it's something that yeah you it maybe didn't actually happen that way but it does a great job of putting you in that situation of just huge contrasts and just kind of this, you know, that this tension is just growing right out there, but inside it's nice and calm in the beginning. <laughs> of course, it doesn't say that way, but, you know, it's, it kind of really sets everything up really well. I'm glad you said that word contrast because there's a couple of scenes that where, where, where the contrast of different situations, different settings is really pronounced. The first one, that that really the one you just mentioned for sure but then after the whole hostage situation has begun and they've raided the embassy and we cut away from that for the first time we're in washington dc and we're overlooking all these monuments you see the washington monument you see the reflection pool all those kinds of things and it's 100 percent peaceful there's no chaos there's no people running around in fact you hardly see any people at all it's nice early in the morning it's sunshiny and this is in stark contrast to Tehran, which we just left, and people are jumping over gates and tying blindfolds around people and otherwise just being incredibly violent. And so that that's one of the earliest examples of major contrast that I noticed in this watching. You're absolutely right. I think that's something that kind of goes through almost, you know, through the entire movie. You get that contrast of this is happening somewhere else right outside of the united states and so when whenever it goes back to the united states you you don't nearly have nearly the amount of violence or really that that tension that's going on but all of the tension in the film is almost built up there on location i mean there's some you know kind of behind the scenes in the cia and in in the government there but not nearly the same kind of tension of that having your life put on the line that you have with the events happening in iran I mean, my favorite scene uh, always has been from the first time I watched it because it was just so hard hitting, I suppose, was when the scene where they are having the script reading in Hollywood oh, uh-huh. <laughs> contrasted with all the nonsense that is happening in Tehran at the exact same time. So you have this uh, cutting back and forth of this f- super fake, 100% fake, fake story with fake actors on a fake production reading this fake script, right? It's 100% not real, low stakes, not a big deal at all. People in costumes juxtaposed with people dying and Iranians making demands and hostages, the, the hostages being pent up in the Canadian ambassador's home. Um, so you've got the, the fake story, you've got the reality that the hostages are experiencing on the other side of the world. And 
it's just masterful filmmaking in my opinion where it 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 just the the contrasts are so great that it has always stood out in my mind from that very first theater experience it almost gives you a sense of this is a game right i mean cuz it, it everything is so fake and on the hollywood side and the even you know the, even the costumes that the actors are wearing to that reading are just so outlandish and, and maybe you know for the time, maybe that was, you know, the the way it was, but it is so, it is, it does contrast what's going on so much. It almost makes, when I was watching that scene, it's, are they actually taking this seriously is something that, you know, kind of came through my mind is, or is this almost, you know, another game that they're playing in order to reach their end goal? You know, in, in this case, not to get too kind of into the conspiracy side of it, but it's like, you know, if, if they're just kind of playing this, they're playing Hollywood and really doing that script reading just so that they can get some press coverage to get the media to say what they want them to say, kind of say, okay, well, if they're this calm about that, what other things could they be doing that they're, you know, just calmly playing the media and, you know, getting them to say whatever they want them to say. And to add another level of fakeness to everything that's happening in Hollywood is Argo is sort of designed to be a Star Wars spoof or a Star Wars ripoff. So you have this big blue Chewbacca and you have these Slave Leia ripoffs. I mean, it's just 100% as fake as you can get. And on the other side of the world, it's about as real as you can get and as real and as desperate a situation as you can be in. And I just love that contrast, not because I love the situation, obviously, but just because the 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 way Affleck and team just put those side by side and you're cutting back and forth and you're hearing hostages and hearing de- irating demands while you're seeing people in costume at a script reading. It's just wow. It blows my mind. It's It's great filmmaking. Makes sense that, you know, Oscar winning film, right? <laughs> they did a really good job of putting that together. <laughs> One more thing I wanted to mention as far as story and putting things together goes is they use a lot of historical footage in the film and there's lots of cutting between historical footage and the 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 new footage okay and then there's there's also all these archival news footages and news broadcasts so you have Walter Cronkite in this film you have Ted Koppel in this film and to me, that just adds sort of an extra layer of gravitas, almost more of a gut punch than if it didn't include those things. Yeah, it adds that level of credibility to it. You know, this is something that actually happened and it was a very real situation and it was a very serious situation. And again, to bring back the word contrast, you know, to contrast exactly what we were just talking about, all that that fakeness, I think bringing those news uh, sources in and, and using actual footage adds that level of, of realism right back into the movie. And as a, as you're watching it, it's, oh, wow, this, this did actually happen. This is, this is real or was real. These are, these are classic news anchors that everybody is familiar with. Uh, so yeah, it, it just adds that much more weight to it. And even during the, the end credits of the film, you get the side-by-side pictures of uh, things that they recreated from, past photos in the film itself it, it, it's really cool i i just love the level of detail that went into everything and even though not everything is 100 percent accurate the things that were they they made sure to pay extra careful attention to adding that real aspect of it at least you know the parts that they did follow closely they're able to kind of show what really happened i think that was they did a really good job with that for sure let's talk about characters um what do you have to say about tony most of the movie revolves around him in my mind. And the more I watch this film, the more I kind of come back to this is his story, even though um, it's, you know, about the six and, you know, uh, there's Brian Cranston's character and there's all the, all these other characters involved. He's the one that to me has grown the most throughout the film. Um, because as he's got this crazy job of, you know, working for the CIA and and doing this, you know, incredibly dangerous mission throughout the film. We also see that um, his, his marriage is struggling and he's trying to be a good, good father. And it's something that is just, you don't really see that with a lot of the other characters. And so for, for me kind of watching this and it makes sense because, you know, he's, as you mentioned in the beginning, he's, you know, the guy that wrote 
the books that the movie is based on. So it is very much from his perspective. And I, I got that through, through the film. And the more I watch it, the more I just have a level of respect for this guy who's not only trying to save the lives of people that up until that point he had never met, you know, over there in, in um, Tehran, but also trying to save his family as well back, back at home and trying to, trying to do both at the same time. It's not easy to do by any means. No, not at all. I mean, the first time we see him, he's, he's not living a great life. You, you can tell from that very first shot, he's, he's face down on his bed in his clothes. The, the slow pan across the room has revealed Chinese takeout sitting on the ground and <laughs> beer cans on the nightstand. And it's just, okay, this is not the, the scene of a guy who is, uh, who has his life together 100%, or at least not his home life. And he's, He's watching movies with his son over the phone rather than in person. He says, oh, what are we watching tonight? And what channel is it on? And so he's on the phone, and that's how he spends quality time with his son uh, at this point. And you you just get this sense that he's he's over-dedicated to his job more than he is to his family. Uh, you can tell he loves him. He definitely loves him. He calls it, he, what does he call his son, Buddy Man or something like that? Yeah, so I, I don't have that written down, but yeah, something like that, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's Buddy Man or something similar. And as he's about to leave for Iran or for uh, Turkey first, I believe, Istanbul, he tries to call his son to wish him a happy birthday because he didn't communicate or he probably couldn't communicate that he was about to leave. This was sudden. And so he has to write a happy birthday postcard to his own son. Um, but on the note, he says, I love you both. He's trying to communicate to his estranged wife that, hey, I, I still have feelings for you too. And I'm still willing to try and make this work. But at this point, he he's just not making it work because so much of his time and effort and life is being put into his job and focusing on other people. And so that's sort of the journey that he goes on throughout the film is, uh, yes, these other people are, are important and I have a responsibility to them and it is my job to make sure that they make it home as safely as possible. But I also have a family and I have a responsibility to them as well. And I, I really like watching that journey throughout the film. Something that always kind of struck me with that, with Ben Affleck's uh, portrayal of, of Tony is it's crazy to me that Ben Affleck won an Oscar for this, but for directing and not for acting. And I, I don't know if if you're like this, Chad, but for for me, Ben Affleck is first an actor, <laughs> and so every time I find out that he's never won an Oscar for acting, he's won an Oscar for directing this film and for uh, writing. Um, I believe it was a Goodwill Hunting with Matt Damon. It's just kind of crazy to me that I, I think he did a great job portraying Tony and 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 portraying that that character and. Uh, I don't know. It, it's just it kind of was something that kind of strikes me every time I see this because yeah, it was masterful filmmaking as far as directing is concerned. But I I think he could have you know been nominated for for acting as well. I don't disagree. I think that the name of the game for Affleck in this film, as far as his acting goes, is subtlety. I could see how maybe on first watch or uh, first viewing, somebody could say, yeah, his character's a little boring, a little flat, but. I think with repeat viewings, you can see a lot of subtle things. You can see uh, maybe the way he turns his eyes or the way he just sort of uh, lets his face droop when he's considering that, that bottle of whiskey or whatever liquor that is at the end of the movie. And he decides, no, this isn't the time. It's time to set aside the alcohol and focus on what's important. And that's really, I think, the big turnaround for his character is that moment when he says, you know, screw the orders that have been given to me. I'm going to do my job and then I'm going to go home and I'm going to make amends with my family. And it, it's subtle things. It, it's it's tiny things. It's not like he's not overacting in this movie at all. But I, I like when a, when an actor can communicate a lot through a little. Now, the other character that I wrote down as having a lot of growth or at least a decent amount of growth is a character of Joe Stafford who is the one who initially doubts Tony's plan. Do you know the one I'm talking about? Remind me again, who's who's he played by? He's played by Scoot McNary. Okay. Mm -hmm. So do you have anything to say about his character? Well, not really. I mean, so not him in particular. I guess I didn't really see, I'd be interested to hear what your, your thoughts are on him, but all of those, uh, the, the six, I guess, you know, kind of, I see them as almost 
one character and I know they have their own personalities and stuff, but it's it throughout the movie. I kind of get this sense of they, they were colleagues and yeah, they knew each other, but going through this experience is something that they, they realize that if they don't, if they don't work together, you know, if they have one weak link, if one person breaks, if they don't remember what they're supposed to remember about, you know, who their fake characters are, or who their, their backstory, or if one person cracks, that's everybody. And so it's something where working in a, in a, in a government role, you know, I, I used to work for the government and, you know, there's a lot of people that just, you go in and you do your nine to five and then you go home and you don't really get to know who you're actually working with. And I'm not saying that that's what it was like, you know, there working overseas, you know, at the embassy there, but it could be very, it could very easily be something of that situation. And that's kind of what I gathered was in the beginning, they don't really know each other. And then going through this experience kind of together, I, I saw them as almost, almost one character kind of really just becoming, becoming good friends. And they all, will always have this sort of bonding experience that they, um, all, their lives rested in, in the hands of, of each other. I definitely see that, and I largely do consider the six to be a, a collective group rather than individual characters, mostly because all of them except for Joe uh, are a little bit more eager or a little bit more willing to go along with Tony's plan initially, but Joe is the one who drags his feet. He says, you know, this plan is a suicide mission. Um, our, our safety is in anonymity, in in our hiding, and the, the second we take our faces out there, we're dead. And it's it's not until Tony opens up, you know, he's been using the alias of Kevin Harkins. That's sort of always been his his ex-fill alias. And he sits down with Joe and he says, listen, my name is Tony Mendez. I have a son. I have a wife. I do this back at home. This is my life. This is who I actually am. And my job is to get you home safe. And I want to get home safe, too, because this is my life. And it's after that that Joe decides, okay. This guy's for real. This guy's just trying to help. Let, let's do it. So he gives in. They go to the bazaar. It's more or less a success. They come back alive <laughs> at least. And then at the airport, what what's cool about Joe to me is that he becomes the convincing voice to to the the people who detain them right before the flight, right where uh, it, it looks like they're not going to be able to make the flight. They're probably going to to get found out. But then he brings out the storyboards and he acts out the scenes and goes over the plot. And uh, it's because he speaks Farsi, for one, but also just because uh, he, he's he's made a turnaround as a character. He he puts his faith in the mission and he buys into it and he's doing his best to make sure that others buy into it as well. And so a, as far as the six go, he's the one that I, I focused on as having any sort of significant kind of arc going from doubter to uh not savior, I wouldn't quite call him that, but he he's the one who convinces the Iranians that they are who they say they are and that they can get on the onto the flight. Which you mentioned him speaking Farsi, which is something that is if you think of it kind of from that from that context, why would a filmmaker, which he was supposed to be, why would he speak Farsi? And I think that's something that was you can kind of see it in that scene. You know, I'm remembering the scene, the scene in my mind. You can see that that tension of, wait a minute, are they? Is this going to blow our cover because he speaks the language, which would be, you know, something that's more likely for one of the the six that they that they're looking for, right? You kind of see that see that tension of, is he going too far? Is his character almost going too far <laughs> in in doing this? And of course, it it ends up working out. But yeah, that, that's a really good point. I, I hadn't I hadn't really thought about that for for his character. I like that you mentioned the idea of him possibly going too far, too, because that's something that I hadn't considered was it, it doesn't necessarily make sense that this Canadian filmmaker would all of a sudden know Farsi uh, <laughs> in the middle of Iran. But, uh, yeah, it, I guess it was him towing a line of convincing and maybe uh, going too far with uh, speaking the language. Yeah. Yeah. What other characters did you want to talk about? I kind of had two and I see them as playing off of each other. One being Jack O'Donnell, which is Brian Cranston's character and uh, Lester Siegel, Alan Arkin's character. And 
as far as, as historically, Lester Siegel, Alan Arkin's character, is, is a fictional character, and he was kind of put into the movie to be an amalgamation of, quote-unquote, Hollywood, right? So he's kind of the the stereotypical Hollywood guy, and he kind of represents a lot of the actual people that worked on, on the film, uh, or the, the fake film, <laughs> rather. And then on the other side, you have uh, Jack O'Donnell, Brian Cranston's character, who is also, as far as I could tell from my research, a, a fictional character, of course, being in the CIA, there's a lot of people that were involved in the operation that, you know, are still not necessarily out in the public eye. But I saw those two as as kind of the 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 establishment on either side. So you have, you know, the government on one side and then you have the uh, Hollywood on the other side. It was really fascinating to me to see those two different angles of, of, of looking at this, you know, Lester Siegel in, in the beginning of the, of the film is, you know, kind of this, you don't really imagine him going along with this. And then he ends up being one of the, one of the biggest supporters of it. You know, there he he's there with uh, John Chambers, uh, John Goodman's character. And they're kind of the two that are the, the Hollywood side. I love them as, as actors. And I think they do a great job of, being the explanatory forces on either side, kind of filling in a lot of the the story that we don't really see otherwise, you know, kind of filling in a lot of those details behind the scenes. I really like Lester, both for his comedy, um, <laughs> because he is very funny in this film, but he also has a couple of dramatic moments. Alan Arkin was the only actor or actress from this film to receive any sort of uh, acting nomination at least at the academy awards he was nominated for best supporting actor and the the big moment for him for me is when john goodman's character john chambers and uh tony go and visit his house and they're they're telling him about this plan and he's he's skeptical i mean he's beyond skeptical he says you know this this sounds crazy this sounds insane this doesn't this isn't gonna work and he's getting ready to go to this lifetime achievement award ceremony and he's 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 ready to just brush this aside but he stands up he's debating with himself and he looks over at the TV and as every TV in this film seemed to be showing because the entire country was engrossed in it and was desperate for the Americans to come home it shows the hostage crisis it shows the latest updates and it shows people getting beaten and it shows people that particular scene, I think it might actually show somebody getting burned alive. I don't, I don't know exactly what's happening, but in any context, it's, it's gruesome. And he stands, he debates, he, he almost like sucks his teeth. Like mm, we're going to need a script. And so that that's the moment he gives in. He says, you know, I see what's happening over there. And if I can have any small part in bringing any of them home, then I'm going to do it. And both him and chambers are sort of, they're sacrificing time. They're sacrificing name, possibly, in order to do the right thing. Even if it is a wild shot, they're trying to do the right thing. And so that's what I love about both Lester and uh, John Chambers. Which, if you think about it, too, both of them being in Hollywood, they're used to being credited for for their work. And I, I like the way you phrase that, where the, you know they're doing the right thing. They truly are. I mean, they're not. It's not something that there would ever be known for publicly. And that, I mean, obviously now we know, you know, decades after the fact, but it's not like it's, it goes on their, you know, their credit list or something that they can use in the future for, you know, building their career, which is kind of something that in the beginning, at least I, I kind of got that sense of, of Lester Siegel where he's, you know, the stereotypical Hollywood producer and he kind of in it for himself. And towards the end, yeah, his character does grow to where he is doing the right thing for the sake of doing the right thing with the knowledge that nobody else is going to know about this. Chambers even won the or was awarded the Intelligence Medal of Merit by the CIA for his involvement in this this situation. But this wasn't declassified until 1997. So we went a whole what is that 17 years? This resolved itself in 1980, 1981. Uh, so 16, 17 years that he went completely unrecognized for this. And yes, he had been involved with the CIA and stuff like that before, from what I gather. But exactly what you were saying, this was something that they weren't going to get immediate credits for. And they didn't know if they'd ever get credits for it. But it was the right thing to do. And I, I can't mention them without mentioning some of their funniest lines. <laughs> 
you've got Chambers. He says, so you want to come to Hollywood, act like a big shot without actually doing anything? You're going to fit right in. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, when he's first talking about Lester's character, before he mentions Lester's character, he's he's talking about, okay, if you're going to do a $20 million Star Wars ripoff, you need somebody who's a somebody to put their name on it. Somebody respectable with credits who you can trust with classified information the whole time he's getting more doubtful like wow <laughs> where are we going to find this guy <laughs> who will produce a fake movie uh for free yeah <laughs> we've got quite a task ahead of us i i love that he's like almost talking himself out of it as he goes <laughs> <laughs> exactly and then we get to lester himself uh, and when they're when they're in the the script searching process, he says, "If it's got horses, it's a western." He's just so flippant <laughs> about it. I mean, that's just the way it is. That's Hollywood. He says, "If I'm going to produce a fake movie, it's going to be a fake hit." <laughs> <laughs> Which goes back back that uh, attribution side, right? A fake hit. What's a what's a hit that you can't tell anybody about? <laughs> <laughs> and then the the best line from him is one that I I can't say. I don't curse, and uh, th- this is a clean show, but. If if you've seen the film, you know it. You know the quote. It is so good. Well, I can I can censor it. I guess Argo, f yourself, right? Argo, f yourself. That is such a great funny line. It makes me laugh every single time. You know that um, researching kind of the true story behind it. That that's actually from Tony Mendez. That was he was the one that came up with that name because that was his favorite knock knock joke. It was you know <laughs> knock knock who's there? Argo, Argo who? Argo, f yourself. That was his. And that was kind of how they how they came up with it. And that was kind of their inside joke is kind of um, which I found fascinating because it it again, it kind of is that goes back to that contrast. And even in real life, knowing that it's this incredibly tense situation, just the fact that they named this fake movie after a joke, <laughs> you know, it, it's grasping at straws and trying to make light of the situation as much as possible. Kind of, at least in my mind, the way I, I thought of it was if you if you're not trying to joke around, then it just becomes way too heavy and then it's almost certain to fail. It's worth noting that that is one of those differences between real life and the film is that the script wasn't originally called Argo. It was called Lord of Light. Lord of Light. Mm -hmm. And was based on a book by Roger Zelazny. And looking at Wikipedia right now, it says that there is actually a TV series based on Lord of Light coming sometime soon, I suppose. I don't know. (laughs) We'll see if it's as good as the script readings that they had in the movie. (laughs) Yeah, we'll see for sure. You already talked about Jack, but I did just have a couple things to say about him as well. Just like Lester and just like John Chambers, he's doing what he has to do in order to protect the Americans during their journey out. So he's called Tony overseas and said, listen, this is they're, they're, they're pulling the plug. This is no longer a thing. Get on the next flight out. Uh, it's over. And then Tony says, you know, to heck with that. And he, he calls and says, okay, this is happening. I'm going. Make it happen. And he hangs up before he has a chance to argue with them. And all of a sudden, Jack, it, it's, it's go time. It's time to talk to all the people that I need to in order to get the go-ahead, to get the flights confirmed, all this kind of stuff. He's running back and forth. He's making fake phone calls about this guy's kids so that he can get in contact with them during a meeting. Screw everything else. I got to do what I got to do to protect our Americans overseas. And, I mean, Brian Cranston is great. This was towards the end of his Breaking Bad run. He's been in a lot more films since then, but I think, from what I remember, this was one of his... I wouldn't say earliest film efforts, but this was one of his transitions out of Breaking Bad, you know, uh, where it was towards the end of that run and he was breaking into film as he was ending that that great cinematic show. Yeah, kind of breaking onto into the Hollywood silver screen aspect. He has one of those great lines as well where they're talking about uh, we only have bad ideas at this point. He <laughs> says, this is the best bad idea we have, sir, by far. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's he's pretty great in that. So so straight faced. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. Now, how about the music? Is there anything that you noticed about the music or anything you want to talk about with Alexander Desplat's score? This was, you know, a soundtrack that honestly I didn't really listen to on its own until I was actually preparing for this. And it's one of those soundtracks that I think he does an amazing job pushing the story in the film, but it's it's a slow and steady build kind of throughout the entire movie all the way up to that 
final scene where, you know, they're in the airport and, and even then it's just very ambient music. It just kind of adds to that tension. It's, it's almost just holding you on the edge of the cliff. You know, what's, what's going to happen? What's, what's going to happen there? And, and then of course, you know, you have that big chase scene and the, and the tarmac at the end and stuff. And so it kind of builds up there. But the one thing that really stood out to me, I guess, overall was how it all just flowed together really well. And it's not something where it's, I, you don't really, I don't say you don't notice it, but it's, it's always there and it just flows from one scene to the next. It just, I don't know, it just clicked. It was, it was really good. Although to be honest, I don't know if it's something that I you know would listen to re- on a regular basis outside of the movie itself, like some other soundtracks. But I think in the film itself, it does a great job. A lot of his music for this film is mostly non-Western, like non-Western hemisphere, very Middle Eastern kind of vibe which is certainly appropriate. I mean, that's what you would expect in a for, for a film that is mostly set in Iran. But there is this one sort of American theme that I call it that is very Western, very traditional film score kind of stuff. Uh, you first hear it in the track called The Mission. Um, I'm not sure what point in the film that track plays the first time, but in that track, it ends with a sort of Middle Eastern dissonance um, on this instrument that's called a ney, which is like a flute kind of thing that you hear in Middle Eastern music a lot. But that theme comes back at the very end of the film in the track called Cleared Iranian Airspace. And it's the moment exactly what it sounds like when they clear Iranian airspace and they're victorious. It's this grand sweeping, very traditional, very lots of relief in the sound, lots of relief in the emotion of that, that track. And what's interesting about that track, Cleared Iranian Airspace, is that it sort of starts with that tension and the dissonance and the Middle Eastern vibe that the earlier track, The Mission, ends with. So it's like they're, they're bookends of uh, the rest of the score. And so I really like how he uses the music for different settings, especially when when they do escape from Iran, you hear the, the victorious American-sounding music, right? And not saying that this is a a patriotic score. That's not what this is. It's not like it's it's the Stars and Stripes Forever that plays as soon as they get out of Iran. It, it's just a, this very emotional, traditional kind of melody that is really, really pretty. It's relieving that tension that's kind of been building up, like you mentioned in the previous track. It's That's kind of what, what I had heard was it, it it flows really well and it, it really ends up relieving that tension when you see it on screen. It just It just works. Yeah, I think that Desplat does a really good job with emotion. I think he writes some of the most beautiful melodies. And you get a lot of different kinds of emotion in the score. In the track Missing Home, there's this huge sense of longing. In the track Sweatshop, there's despair. And then in Cleared Iranian Airspace, relief. And so I, I really I really like that. I, I just I like Desplat a lot. This isn't the most melodic of his scores, but there is a lot of the traditional Desplat kind of stuff. And you've got both that American theme, as I mentioned, and then track that's called Asetuto Guagua. And it's more Middle Eastern. It's not American sounding, as you guessed by the title. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Just to state the obvious, (laughs) but it's it's a little bit more traditional than anything else that you hear from the, the Middle Eastern parts of the score. And it, it's very pretty. It's very simple. It's repetitive, but it's very nice to listen to. So one more time, it's called Ase Tuto Guagua. If you wanted to look that up out there, it's it's very nice. Yeah, I I think what you mentioned there it hit it on the head for me with the music. It's it doesn't try to be the forefront throughout the film. You know, it it's it's there to to set the tone to help you feeling the emotions that the movie itself is doing. And uh, yeah, he does, he does a great job of complementing that throughout the entire film. And, and then, you know, at the end it's, it is that sense of relief and you can finally breathe and (laughs) everything, you know, they're safe. That relieving theme, that American theme, whatever you want to call it in cleared Iranian airspace accompanies everybody celebrating and hugging each other and crying, weeping at the fact that this ordeal is over. It's great. I love it so much. Now let's go ahead and talk about our takeaways, the the relevance of this movie. And because it is a true life movie and not necessarily a work of fiction, at least most of it, 
it's not like it was designed to to teach a lesson, right? This is this is just real life, but we can extrapolate lessons from the film. So what what's one that you have? One that I had was how much the government will go to do what they need to do. And it was it's really interesting to me. I'm a big fan of spy movies and big fan of thrillers and, and things like that. And so the kind of the clandestine aspect of this where they're pulling in the feature film industry. And one of the the big takeaways that, that I kind of had for it was this is something that happens, you know, a couple decades before anybody knew about it. And so it, anytime I see something like this, it's always, well, okay, then what, what's going on right now? What's one of those, you know, flop film that's out there right now that's just a fake movie for some sort of cover-up or something <laughs> like that, right? <laughs> that, that's great. I, I, I'm going to pretend every bad movie that comes out is a cover <laughs> for some sort of espionage overseas. Exactly. I mean, why else would they, why else would they go out? <laughs> what was the Emoji movie covering up? Who knows? <laughs> for me, uh, that sort of ties in with what I'd come up with, this idea of collaboration. Right. You've got the U.S. collaborating with Canada. You've got Tony collaborating with the the group of hostages. You've got the group of hostages collaborating with each other and with the Canadian embassy. And then you've got the CIA uh, collaborating with the rest of the government, with Hollywood. There, there's all sorts of collaboration going on. There's no team in this movie uh, that was able to do anything completely on their own. Everything was the the result of teamwork and communication and pulling things together it, it's it's just this huge that's that, that's really the big takeaway of this situation in real life 100% is that people worked together and they were successful and it, it's just really cool to see this kind of diplomacy between nations between uh, departments between industries to to work together and pull something off so successfully it's really cool one of the other kind of takeaways I, I had from the film too would be kind of something I alluded to earlier with, with Tony Mendez's character where throughout the film, you know, he's, he is trying to kind of repair that relationship and that with his son and, and his wife. And then at the very end, you see him kind of, you know, relaxing there with his son. He's finally getting to spend time with his son, you know, face to face and, you know, not over the phone. But then as I was kind of digging into the true story behind this, it, it really hit even more because um, in the in the movie, his son's name is Ian Mendez, and he's played by Aiden Sussman. And his Tony's real son was named Ian, and he actually specifically asked the filmmakers to keep Ian in the film because the real Ian Mendez actually passed away from cancer in 2010. He was only 44 years old at the time, and so it kind of pulled everything together. Once I kind of learned that, to find out that you know the the real Tony still had this connection with his son, and so it's something that kind of it it is actually something that the real Tony went through and it was still, you know, in helping to create the film, it was something that keeping Ian in there was kind of keeping his memory alive. I didn't know that. I, I, I like that. And, you know, it's, it made a point in the end credits of the film to say that he was living in, what was it, Maryland or something with his family at this point in his life. Yeah. So in, in 2012, after his story has been told, the lesson is now, Yes, he's older, but he's living with his family and he's mended that relationship. And funny enough, that ties in with my second theme or takeaway as well, which is just clinging to those we love. You know, at the end of the film, he returns to his wife, he returns to his son because his time spent in Iran, he's seen people separated from their families. He's seen people who've stared death in the face. He's stared death in the face himself at this point. And he he comes to realize that whatever issues or differences that they may have, uh, him and his wife, him and his son, him and whoever else, he wants to be with his family. And even amongst the hostages, Tony aside, you've got two couples and the whole film, they're at each other's sides and uh, they're they're relying on each other and they're partnered with each other. The lesson is for me, the whole film, collaboration and then uh, sticking to those people that you love and relying on them as well. Yeah, I mean, that's great. Any other takeaways or final thoughts on the film itself? No, I mean, those were the, kind of the, the two big ones, just kind of remembering what's important in life and working together as a team to, to achieve that. 
Okay, well, I think that is the end of the official 58th episode of Cinescope. Thank you so much for talking with me tonight, Dan. Yeah, thanks, Chad. It was nice to have a reason to revisit this film. Not that I needed much of a reason because it is great, but I appreciated being able to talk about it with you tonight. So many great films, so little time. (laughs) (laughs) Ain't that the truth? (laughs) Contact for the show, facebook.com slash Cinescope Podcast and at Cinescope Pod on Twitter. Please consider going over to iTunes, rating and reviewing a show. Even just hitting a star rating is a big help. Uh, Email feedback and ideas to thecinescopepodcast at gmail.com. And also, if you're interested in co-hosting the show, if you have a movie that you love that you'd like to talk about, contact me, whether it's through email, whether it's through Facebook or Twitter. Uh, Just let me know, and we'll maybe try and find a way to get you on. Now, Dan, where can people find you and find your show? Yeah, you can find my show at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Um, you can find me I'm directly on Twitter. Where I'm at Dan Lefeb, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. Okay, thank you very much. And I, I will be sure to check out more of Based on a True Story, including your Argo episode. <laughs> well, let me know what you think once you do. Will do. Now, the best place to find me is at Chadadada on Twitter. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A and Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins. And don't forget, I recently started a new podcast called An American Workplace. And that is an office rewatch podcast with my friend Katie. And we just released our seventh episode, I believe. I think we're, uh, I've got the eighth episode to edit tonight and tomorrow, and it'll be available the day before this one is actually. So if you're interested in the office, if you're a fan and you want to rewatch or you haven't watched before, you can go check that out. You can find it where podcasts can be found and workplacepodcast.com. And all of our show notes and all of our contact information can be found at this show's website, thecinescopepodcast.com. And that's all for this week. Thank you, Dan, having you on the show. It's been a good time. Thank you. Thanks, Chad. And thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 58. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode 59. Have fun and celebrate movies. (laughs) ¶¶